Good to see everybody here today, um, especially on this nice fall weather. Um, just to reiterate some of the announcements that James just made, um, uh, one of the things that we were saying is that uh, I think the leadership would like it and ask you to continue to maintain some sort of social distancing. Use your wisdom, you know, your own judgment. Um, we're not out of the pandemic yet, and we don't want to unnecessarily create problems for anybody in the church. But also, I think we do want to have some sort of policy in terms of what we do if uh, someone in our membership does get sick. Um, if you or your loved one or someone who's been in this ch church contracts, you know, the virus um, or is sick, please do what you can and responsibly to um, using your best judgment to take care of things. But also let, let the leadership know if you could so that the leadership could also prepare um, the church for um, continual worship in, in, in person. And that's something that we want to do um, going forward as we want to more and more transition to more in-person worship um, from our live stream as well in the next year. So just to kind of reiterate that as well. Um, <clears throat> we are here in the book of Acts. Last week, Pastor James gave a great sermon on um, speaking truth and love. And before that, we were looking at the book of Acts here in chapter 16. In this same passage for the past two weeks before, and I'm resuming that as we kind of wrap up this section. And what I'm going to do today is uh, I'm going to look at this one person, this what we call the Philippian jailer. And uh, not today, but also the next time we, uh, we meet and look at this passage, there are a couple things I, I want to look at more deeply with regards to this passage. Next week is actually uh, our Thanksgiving Sunday. I think uh, that's what I decided to do. Um, I think uh, that that week is Thanksgiving, so we'll probably do something just regarding Thanksgiving, so we'll take a break. But next week, the week after, we'll look at this again. And here, I just want to give you first the basics, okay? These are just what we see, what I see here on the surface of the passage. Uh, the book of Acts is, is really about the spread of the gospel. It's how Christianity starts to grow, and churches start to be planted, and churches begin to grow. And as you come to chapter 16, we, hear, we are here in Paul's second missionary journey, uh, and he shows us, Luke shows us, the spread of Christianity, and you're given basically, I think, three case studies, um, three examples, if you will, about how the gospel comes to people, and they come to people in different ways. Uh, and so if you remember when we started this passage, we saw Lydia, who comes from an established and accomplished background. She apparently hears a sermon or maybe a Bible study, and then she gets baptized. And then the week after that, we, we saw this slave girl, right, who was really on the other side of the spectrum, the social spectrum, who was apparently possessed, spiritually enslaved. We also said she was socially enslaved, making money for her owners, and Paul casts out the demon in the name of Jesus, right? She gets delivered, not just spiritually, but even socially. And so what happens after this to Paul and Silas is that uh, they, they are reported to the magistrates, and um, they are accused of breaking the law of, of Rome and you know, doing something that they shouldn't have been doing. So in verse 22, you read that the crowd begins now attacking them. The magistrates tear their garments, their clothes up. Uh, they get dragged out, they get stripped, they get beaten with rods. And um, here now, in verse 20 and 21, they're, they're probably bloodied up. There's some maybe broken bones, and they get thrown into prison. And in verse 23, uh, we're told about this jailer 
who has given orders to guard Paul and Silas. Now let's look at this jailer, this third person in our story today. Um, who is this jailer? Who is this person? Well, if you know something of the background of jailers, like most jailers during this day, uh, he was probably an ex-Roman soldier, right? Someone now older, in the maybe latter years of his career, and he's a retired soldier, so he's, he's probably this hardened guy, this tough character, who's kind of living out the rest of his life with a little bit of honor that he had left as a soldier, now working for the government, you could say, as the jailer, okay? Second thing about this jailer is this. He's not just a tough guy. He's also merciless. You know, in verse 23, he was told to guard Paul and Silas. But what does he do? In verse 24, we read, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. So this guy doesn't just guard them. He doesn't just watch over them. In verse 24, he puts them in the inner prison, Luke tells us. Now, you've got to understand something about jail back then. The inner prison or the inner cell is that place that is the darkest part of the prison. There are no windows. There's no light. The air was probably really bad. And here's Paul and Silas. They're wounded from the beating. They're all bloody and broken up. The jailer doesn't care. He puts them in the worst room possible, and then he puts them in stocks. So he tortures them. The jailer was just told to guard Paul and Silas, but this dude is going the extra mile. He's torturing them, and he's probably trying to assert his authority over these guys. So he's this jailer. He's the third person in our chapter, basically an ex-military guy, probably a, a, a blue-collar type of guy. He's different from the first two people in this narrative, isn't she? Uh, Lydia was rich. She was respected. She was living on the higher end of the food chain, so to speak. You had the slave girl who was poor on the other end of the spectrum, doesn't own anything, mentally, spiritually disturbed, living on the lower end of the food chain. And now you have this jailer, this Philippian jailer, who's probably somewhere in the middle of that chain in society. Lydia came to know Jesus through a sermon. She had a more rational approach. She was already sort of open. The slave girl was troubled. She needed help. She needed someone to intervene. But here's the thing about this jailer. He could really care less about a Bible study. He could really care less about a sermon. And he's not asking any questions like Lydia might have done. And also, he, he's not like the slave girl. He's not troubled by anything beyond the ordinary where he needs someone to intervene like the slave girl did. If Lydia was open to Paul's message, the possessed slave girl was downright belligerent to Paul's message, but this Philippian jailer, he was totally apathetic. He's apathetic. Hey, that's good for you, Paul and Silas. That's, you know, to each his own. I could care less. This guy was just a hard worker who really just cared about his job. In fact, he probably just lived for whatever honor he had left as a soldier to be good and as a jailer. He probably had commission from Rome to do the job, so that was his life. That's what he did day in and day out. I think out of all the three characters here that we see in Acts chapter 16, 
The jailer is actually someone many of us, if not most of us, could relate with. Those of us who work every day, Monday through Friday, sometimes even Saturday, the same thing over and over again. You might come to church once a week, but I'm going to be very honest. The odds are stacked against me. No matter how good a sermon I could preach, the influence of what you experience from day to day, Monday through Saturday, probably has more impact to you day to day in your life. It's a struggle. That is what you do. This is what you spend your time doing. This is what you live for. It is your life. Forrest Gump, uh, that movie a long time ago, and I know I'm dating myself, you know that famous quote he has? Quote, my mom always said, life is like a box of chocolates, end quote. Remember that? And for many of us, and I think also for this jailer, that's what our life is like. It's like this box. And we, we fill this box, but not with chocolate per se, but whatever we think gives our life happiness, uh, meaning, or purpose. For some of us, that's, that's money. For others of us, it's reputation, popularity. Maybe it's our vocation. For others of us, it's a relationship. It's people. It's family. It's friends. Uh, maybe it's even more basic. It's just health. And, and good, good life, you know, being normal, you know, whatever you might want to call that. But whatever it is, whatever we put in that box we call life, it's what we value, it's what we live for, and that's what we put in that box. But what happens when your box starts to fall apart? What happens when you start losing uh, what you put in? When what you have and earned and worked hard for now is threatened? Or worse, taken away. That's when we become anxious. That's when we become nervous. That's when some of us become depressed. And I know some of you have felt this. You've come to a point where you're losing things, you're not gaining what you want, and you feel like maybe this is the end of my life. And this Philippian jailer had his own box, and in it, he had his honor. He had his work, it was his status, his position, it was all that he had left at the end of his life. And it falls apart. You read verse 26 and onwards, what happens? It says there, suddenly there was a great earthquake, the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Right? And so when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he opened, and what did he do? He drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. You see, we're told that there's this earthquake. All the doors open up. All the bonds are unfastened. Think about this. Think about this, okay? If your life purpose is to be a good jailer, a good jailer doesn't let his prisoners escape. If all your prisoners escape, they get away, you're a bad jailer. And you could blame the natural catastrophe for it all, but in the end, you are the one who's going to get blamed. And worse, you might be executed for letting the prisoners escape. How would you feel? What would you do? If your life was based on doing this one job and you fail, what would you do? And so we're told in verse 27, there wasn't anything he felt like he could do but draw a sword and kill himself. In other words, he's suicidal. You have a suicidal person. 
Now, some of you might be sitting there thinking, that sounds kind of extreme. But is it really? Have you ever had suicidal thoughts? Have you ever known someone who's had those thoughts? Have you ever known someone who succumbed to those things? Have you ever felt, not maybe you didn't want to really do it, but, but you just feel like ending it, that you couldn't take it anymore, that, that, that just there's no hope, there's no, there's no answer, there's, it's that you're in a dark place and you can't see anything at the end of the tunnel. You feel like all your hopes are dashed, all your efforts are wasted, all that you've lived for is no longer there. What's the point? And so this jailer who put his hope his effort, his honor, his work is now having an existential crisis. What is the point of existing if all that I have been living for is now gone? And he doesn't have any answers. And the only thing he felt left to do was just to end himself. And it's at this point, when you look at verse 28, Paul says, stop. Don't harm yourself. We are all here. And what does the jailer, how does he respond? Verse 29, he called for the lights, he rushes in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas, and he brought them out and said, Sir, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? What just happened? What must I do to be saved? And the question we've got to ask really carefully is this. What made this guy ask such a question? I mean, here's a guy who probably could care less for Paul's religion. He was apathetic, right? So why does he come and ask this question? And you might think, well, he was just so thankful that the prisoners didn't run away, and so he still has his job, and therefore his life. But, but you look, look carefully. It's got to be more than that. He was suicidal, but if it was just about his job, he still has it, right? We're here. Paul, Paul says we're here. He still has his job. He still has his life. He's safe now. If his job was his life, then his life is safe. Then why does he still ask, what do I have to do to be saved? Why does he feel that his life still needs saving? You see the irony? And I think part of the answer we find in verse 25. In verse 25, we read that while Paul and Silas were in prison, it says there, they were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Here's Paul. Bloody, beaten, in chains, in stocks, tortured, and he's singing, and he's praying, and, and the fellow prisoners listened. You know that word in the Greek, listened? It doesn't just mean they eavesdropped, okay? It means they listened intently. It means they were riveted with amazement because everybody else, I don't know if you were in Paul's position, I know what I would do. I would be complaining and whining and just you know, I would want to die, right? I think that's what I would be. Everybody in that prison is whining and crying in their suffering. They're just waiting, even wanting to die. But here are these two guys, and they're singing and they're praying in that situation. Do you see the irony again? Who's the prisoner here? 
Who's the ones that are free? Paul is the one. He's the one in chains. He's the one behind bars. He's, and yet he's, he's singing with joy and with peace. The jailer, he's not in chains. He's not in bars, but he's suicidal. He wants to die. Who's the prisoner here? Who's the free person? The jailer's life, though technically free, was more enslaved, more in bondage than the life of Paul, though physically in chains, yet spiritually free. How do you do that? How do you experience peace and joy in the midst of suffering? How do you experience freedom in the midst of bondage? And then here's the other thing. When Paul and the other prisoners got free from their chains, look, they could have just run away. They knew the jailer would be punished if they escaped, and he deserved it. The prisoner or the, the jailer knew he would deserve it because he was so mean to them from the very beginning. He put him in the darkest cell. He put him in stocks. He left them to be tortured. Think about this. If you were Paul and Silas and your chains just somehow just came off, what would you do? I know what I would do. I would run as fast as I could. And in the back of my mind, I would know that that jailer was going to get what he deserves. It's the perfect time to pay back this jailer. Let's run. But Paul doesn't. He, he doesn't run away. He doesn't pay back, even though he could have and had every right to do so. He says, stop. Don't hurt yourself. We're still here. He shows kindness to the unkind. He shows mercy to someone who was merciless to him. He overcomes the evil, not with more evil, but with good. Look, you see this? Why did the Philippian jailer feel moved to come to his knees and ask this question, what do I have to do to be saved? And what did Paul say? And here's the weird thing. He didn't say anything. I mean, for Lydia, he preached a message. For the slave girl, he says, I command you in the name of Jesus, get out. But not here. He didn't really say anything. It wasn't because of anything Paul said. It was because of what Paul did. How he did. Peace and joy. Real freedom in the midst of suffering. Who does that? Mercy and kindness in the face of cruelty. No payback. Who lives like this? Maybe there is something to what Paul believes in. What, what's the difference? And sure, the Philippian jailer, maybe he feared for his life because he saw the power of God in the earthquake. But I also think he saw the power of faith in their lives. And maybe that's instructive to some of us who say we believe, who talk like we know, but yet you are more filled with hate and anger and criticism and bitterness than any other person there. Maybe rather than just saying you believe in something, maybe for people like this jailer, the proof is in the pudding. 
It's in the living. Knowing something true and living it can be two different things, but they ought to be connected. They ought to be related. You know, I've shared this before. You know, whenever I go to a barber or, you know, and they always ask, what do you do? I'm always hesitant to tell them I'm a pastor. One is because once I do that, they always box me into a kind of person that I'm supposed to be, and they start talking differently. Uh, and that makes me uncomfortable. But another reason is they already have expectations of what pastors should be doing, how they should be living. And I'm going to be very honest. There are many points in my life where I'm not doing what I know I should be doing and what I say I believe in. There's a disconnect. And sometimes I think it's better not to tell anyone you're a Christian, especially if your life shows the very opposite. Because it looks bad, not just on you. It looks bad on God. It looks bad on Jesus Christ. It looks bad on the faith you say you believe in. But this jailer saw how they were living in prison. And he wants to know. He wants to know. Freedom and bondage? How do you do that? Peace and joy and suffering? How do you do that? Kindness instead of revenge? What must I do to get like that? What must I do to be saved? And I think for the first time, he's asking a spiritual question. He's asking for salvation. He's not asking to be free from Roman punishment, after all. None of the prisoners escaped. It's a spiritual question. And I think to ask this kind of question, I think in his mind, there must have been a paradigm shift in his life that maybe he questioned that maybe life isn't just about his honor. That maybe life isn't all about his work or what he did just here and now. Maybe by asking this question, he's starting to see that there's more than just what he saw and what he did. And he's asking these guys, how do I get there? How do I get my life from here to there in order to live the way you do? And it's at this point, he probably expected Paul to tell him, well, here are 10 things you need to do, okay? Go to church, pray, read the Bible, uh, you know, do missions, something like that. Like many of us do when we think about religion, it's like a bunch of do's and don'ts, right? Do this, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do that. And, and I think the guy was looking for that because, you know, he's a soldier, right? He's good at doing things and getting things done. Do this, check. Read the Bible, okay, check. Go to church, okay, check. Am I there? But Paul's response was this. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The way of salvation, the way of rescue, the way of freedom is faith in Christ. It's faith alone, in Christ alone. It's abandoning yourself and trusting him. It's, it's a point where you come to and say, look, there's nothing I can do. Give me a list. I'm not going to do it very well. There's no work that I can accomplish. There's no motives I can fulfill that will give me what I ultimately need. You see, the world says, look, you got to just dig deep. Look deep inside you, deep down, and, and you'll find the strength, and you'll find your fulfillment, and you can do anything. But Christianity says, look, 
there is nothing in me that can do or give me what I need the most. It has to come from something or someone outside of me. Someone has to intervene inside of me. And it's all, therefore, about the grace of God. The only thing that I can do, the only thing that this jailer could do was to throw himself completely on the mercy and the grace of God and cry out, please, save me. Save me. Let's be clear. He's not asking for a get-out-of-hell-free card, okay? He's not just asking for a get-out-of-jail-free card. It, 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 salvation is not just about, well, you don't have to go to hell anymore. That, that, that's maybe part of it, but it's not the it. When he says, As, how do I... How do I we get saved. I think he's asking for something bigger, something now. I think he's looking for life change. That when he's asking for, can, how do I get saved? He's asking that his identity change from what he was focused on in doing and what he could do to an identity that's focused on what God has done for him. I think he's looking for a change in meaning, a meaning that moved from his job, his status, his work which he had gained, and change that meaning to a status he gains in Jesus Christ by the work that Jesus does for him. A child of God saved by grace. I think he wanted to change from being always under the control of present circumstances, whether good or bad, which are always destined to change to something more, to someone more, eternal and unchanging, and status never changed. So what happens to this jailer? What were the results? Well, you look at verse 33. He says that the jailer took those people the same hour of that night, and he washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family, and he brought them into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced. Look at this person change. I mean, verse 34, he rejoiced like Paul did in prison when he sang hymns and prayed. In verse 33, he, he washes their wounds. He shows them compassion and goodness like Paul did. When he showed them or him compassion and goodness instead of payback. The jailer was asking, how do I live like you, Paul? How do, how do I get there? How do I live in a way that I'm just not in bondage just to my circumstances? How do I live in a way that I'm, I'm not enslaved by my desires for success or reputation or status or people's approval or affirmation? What do I have to do to live in a way so that I'm not overwhelmed by my failures or puffed up because of my successes? How do I live in a way that where I'm not always controlled by my present situation. How do I sing and pray in the midst of hardship and suffering? How do I show mercy to the merciless? How do I overcome evil with good? What must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? Not just from hell. What must I do to be saved from me? From me. And Paul says, believe in him and you will be saved. 
trust in him. Let yourself go. Stop trying to fill your boxes with things that are destined to be empty in the end. Be filled with him and him alone for all things. And you will be saved. Horatius Bonar, a Scottish pastor, had a hymn that put it so eloquently this way. And I'll just end with this. He says this, quote, Upon a life I have not lived. Upon a death I did not die. Another's life, another's death, I stake my whole eternity. Not on the tears which I have shed, not on the sorrows I have known. Another's tears, another's griefs, on these I rest on these alone. That was the answer. Let's pray.